All right. If uh, you're a visitor here, we welcome you and uh, just want to let you know that uh, I haven't preached the sermon yet. So that's what we're doing now. So please turn to John, John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And I know it can be, uh, if, if you're not used to uh, going to a church that actually preaches the Bible, it can be a bit much coming here. And so much Bible exposition. But, you know, what, what else? Uh, first, what God would call us to do is not to perform for you, not to dance and put on a show and a play and have a quartet and, and you know, that's not what God would call us to do. God would call us to worship Him according to His Word. And, uh, but I would also add to that that I can't do any of those things anyways. So <laughs> it would be of no value to you if I attempted to. Um, but this morning we're turning our attention to Luke, uh, excuse me, John chapter 1, verses 43 through 51. John chapter 1, verses 43 through 51. Hear the word of the Lord. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee. And he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Amen. Uh, let, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would grant me uh, assistance in uh, proclaiming it to your people. Grant them assistance in receiving it. Grant those uh, attention, Lord, who are here, who may be distracted for various reasons. Uh, help those who are here, Lord God, who do not believe in you, who, who count the preaching of your word uh, to be foolishness, Lord. Uh, we know that uh, that is the case. Paul makes it very clear that the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But we pray, Lord, that uh, as it is preached, not for the sake of the preacher, but for the sake of your Son, that it would become the word of life to them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. How does Christianity spread? How does it spread? Mega churches, 
rallies, revivals? How does Christianity spread? Very simply, Christianity spreads by evangelism. That's how Christianity spreads. Believers bearing witness to Jesus. Believers telling others, come and see. That's how Christianity spreads. It's the testimony that we have, of course, if we're outside of the Gospels in the book of Acts, we see that Christianity spread by means of evangelism. As one author writes, the foundational principle of truly Christian expansion ever since the beginning, new followers of Jesus bearing witness of him to others who in turn become disciples and repeat the process. It's basically, you know, rinse, wash, repeat. Rinse, wash, repeat. This is how Christianity spreads. And we have it very clearly here in these chapters. In this particular chapter, in these sections, beginning at verse 29, remember, uh, John the Baptist was declaring publicly that Jesus was the Lamb of God, and then we see him do it privately. And as he does it privately with those two disciples, Andrew and John, Andrew goes off and tells his brother. John goes off and tells his brother. And now here we have an example of Jesus doing personal evangelism, going and telling others these things. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee. And he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. The following day, this is now the fourth consecutive day. And I think it's, this is maybe our fifth week on, <laughs> but our, the fourth day of this week, really, that uh, John traces for us. The, on the first day, remember, John the Baptist spoke to the religious leaders. On the second day, we have his public ministry to the crowds. On the third day, we have his private ministry to Peter, uh, excuse me, to Andrew and then Peter. And then now this description with Philip and Nathaniel. And it was Jesus' intention to go to Galilee. He wanted to go to Galilee. Uh, Jesus ministered to men and women who were considered insignificant. Galilee was really on the outskirts. There was nobody important there. Um, look, look at verse, um, it, it was Galilee, Nazareth, these kinds of towns were all similar. So, um, that's why Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Kerhunksen? Wawarsing, Napanuk, Ellenville, Accord. We must never forget, you know, um, that it, God loves to use and to minister to the insignificant, to the, particularly to those whom the world despises and counts as nothing. Remember the words of Paul, right? What, what does Paul say about believers in uh, 1 Corinthians? I think it's in chapter 1 or 2. He, speaking of, of believers, he says, 
um, in verse uh, chapter 1, in chapter 1, in chapter 1, verse 26, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 26, Paul says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. He's not saying none. Right? God, 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 Paul himself was a brilliant man. Well, it's not none. But he says, if you look among yourself, who are the majority? But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world, the things which are, uh, uh, excuse me, and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? Why does God do this? That no flesh should glory in his presence. You know, if we had some really good-looking dude who was seven foot tall, gigantic, short, just a handsome man preaching the gospel every Sunday, we'd probably fill this building, right? An eloquent voice, the voice of an angel, right? Smelled delicious, you know? We'd pack the place out. But people would be glorying in his flesh. It was because of the, the, the man, right? But... God does this that we might not glory in his presence. You see, uh, un- people who are not Christian, unbelievers, rank just straight up unbelievers, think that they're wise. Right? They think That's the issue. And these stupid people, you know, with this archaic book, there's so many, you know, they say really ignorant things like there's so many versions you can't even understand. You know, really ignorant things like they don't understand the issue of translation. But they say very ignorant things, and they believe things that are absolutely nonsensical, you know? So now, uh, pamspermia, that's what they believe, that some aliens came, generally what evolutionists are teaching, some aliens came, and they seeded the planet with life. That's 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 like Twilight Zone. I think that's actually one of the Twilight Zone episodes. But, but, but you see, they, the, what God does is, uh, this is tr- the scripture, God's word is true wisdom. To the unbeliever, it appears to be folly. So what God does is he saves those who are foolish so that they cannot boast in their flesh. And that's what he does. So he's intending to go, he desires to go to Galilee and to minister there. And he finds... He finds someone. He finds Philip. Now, there are two ways of finding things. You stumble across it. I lost my wallet the other day. You know, I'm searching for this thing. Well, I actually lost my wallet twice. I lost my wallet, and then I stumbled, my wife stumbled across it. It was in the middle of the kitchen floor. I'd still think one of my kids was hiding it, but anyway. So that's one way. That's that's one way. The one way to find something is you stumble across it. The other is by searching for it. The second time I lost my wallet for some strange reason, it was in my bathrobe. 
I don't know why it was in my bathrobe. Again, I think my kids were hiding it, probably. <laughs> but uh, um, so there are these two ways of finding things, and here it's the the, the second is what the the word means by means of searching. The Lord Jesus was looking for Philip. The Lord Jesus was looking for Philip, and and he found him. We must never lose sight of the fact that Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. That's why Jesus came. You see, sometimes um, we can, uh, you know, we can get so concerned with um, helping people to come to grips with the knowledge that they've sinned that we forget that Jesus came to save sinners. But he came to save, seek and save that which was lost. He was not another rabbi just you know, waiting for disciples to come to him so he could teach them his ways. He came to lay hold upon his sheep because he loves them. We can never lose sight of that. That's why Christ came. And that's how we go out for others. We go out to seek and save those who are lost. They may be in our own home. They may be in our workplace. They may be our neighbors. They may be the cashiers at Walmart or the, you know, the waitress at Ricky Lynn's, whoever it might be. But that should be our intention because men and women are lost. You see, either, either you're, you're, you are a biblical Christian, you, you are one who's heard the, those words in some way or another, follow me. And you've decided to follow Jesus Christ as he is presented to us in the gospel as the true prophet of God and the only savior of the world. You don't have to add anything else to Christ. You either follow him that way or you're lost. So we as God's people, we go out this way with this intention. This is our prayer and our heart's desire. Yet, look at how simply he speaks to Philip. He finds him and he says, follow me. And he follows. And he follows him. There is a note here, or an aspect really, of authority in his call to Philip. And really, this is bound up with uh, a fuller expression of this is seen in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 18. When after his resurrection, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Go, therefore, because I have been raised from the dead. Now you have authority to go anywhere in the world and make disciples. I'm the king of the world. Jesus says, you're my servants. Go make disciples everywhere. Jesus already had that kind of authority at this point. So he goes to Philip, and immediately he says to Philip, follow me. The rationale for the Great Commission was the authority of Jesus. And Jesus' rationale for telling Philip to follow him is his own authority. His own authority. He had the credentials to match, of course. And Jesus is not only saying, like, follow me around, right? What he is saying to, to, to Philip is, 
your, your thoughts now, the way that you think about life must be subject to me, the way that you interact with others, the way that you feel, the way that you think, everything you do must be conformed to a particular pattern, must be conformed to the image of Christ. He's not just calling him to walk around, but to be his disciple, but to be his disciple. It's like if a young man is interested in a trade and he becomes an apprentice, right? What, the, what, the, what, does, the, what does the young man do, right? If, let's say he decides he wants to be a boilermaker and he fills out his application. And, you know, if he gets a call back from the manager at McDonald's, you know, he might be surprised, right? Hey, who is this? It's the manager at McDonald's. Yes, this is uh, Rick. How can I help you? You signed an application to be a Boilermaker. We want you to come down here to McDonald's and I'm going to train you. Well, you'd probably take that phone call and be a little bit surprised, right? What credentials do you have to call me, to ask me to come down to McDonald's? Have you ever made a boiler? I don't even know what Boilermakers, boiler benders, whatever they're called technically. I don't know what they do, but whatever it is that they do, the, you know, the manager at McDonald's doesn't do it. So when Jesus, uh, when Jesus asks Philip to follow him, he's doing this because he has the credentials. He has particular bona fides. And Jesus, on these occasions when he does this, he is implementing his messianic authority. He has the authority to do this. And now in light of the Great Commission, because Jesus has ascended into heaven, he has given his church that authority. He has handed it off to us. Not that it's ours, but now we serve as his, as his servants. We go out with that authority, with his credentials. So on the other hand, you might get a call from the secretary at the local, right? If you call for an apprenticeship and she gets on the phone, you, right? He calls you, hey, Rick, you signed up to be an apprentice? Yeah, I did. And I can ask her, hey, are you a boiler maker? And she could say, no, I don't make any boilers. But... The guy who runs a chapter here and trains people called me to tell you to come in. Okay, I'm, a, I'm on my way. That's the same way that we come. We come with his authority. Yet Jesus, when he comes to Philip, with his own direct authority to submit every aspect of his life to him. Uh, Philip is, is always listed in, uh, with the apostles. Uh, he's one of the twelve. And he really, Philip seems to be just a, a, a regular believer. There's really nothing special or dynamic about him. He's, his name really doesn't come up uh, as much as it does in John's gospel. In the other gospels, he's just in the list of the 12. And in the book of Acts, he comes up in one of those lists. But here are his interactions with Jesus. And you, and you see how he was just a normal believer. Look at uh, chapter 6, verse 7. There was nothing extraordinary about Philip. In chapter 6, verse 7. <clears throat> and this is when Jesus is going to feed the 5,000. Philip answers Jesus and says, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. It's just, just you know, a sincere statement. Um, he just an ordinary believer. When in chapter, uh, I look at also, uh, lost my place here. 
Uh, look also at chapter 12. Look also at chapter 12. And here, uh, verses 21 through 22. Now, there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And then Philip goes to Andrew, and Andrew and Philip go to Jesus. Right? So it's kind of, uh, he has these disciples, the, these men who are interested in Jesus come to him, and what does he do? Does he preach a sermon? Well, he doesn't really preach a sermon. He's kind of, it appears that he's rather just a simple believer. The fact that it's highlighted, we'll see what the, the Bethsaida means uh, house of the hunter or house of the fisherman. And he was probably just a regular fisherman. He didn't have a, a, a very high education. He was just a normal believer. These Greeks come up to him. He doesn't know what to do. So he goes to Andrew for assistance. And then they bring the men to Jesus. In chapter 14, he comes up another time. Look at well, chapter 14 and, and verse 8. And this is a statement to Jesus. He says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it, is, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? You see? So just a, a, a normal believer. I'm, I'm, um, the text, so I'm not saying that the man was a twit, like he was an incompetent, you know, uh, you know, incompetent person, but he was just a normal believer. He was more than likely a fisherman, and uh, he was more than likely friends with uh, with uh, Peter and Andrew. He was more than likely their friend because we see, go back to John 1, uh, and look at how he makes this statement to Nathaniel. He says to Nathaniel, uh, in verse 45, we have found him. Who's the we? Well, more than likely, it's the other two. It's, oh, well, three. Really, it's, it's John, it's Peter, and uh, Andrew. So he probably knew them. He was a fisherman, but just a normal believer. And he, here's what's impressive. Jesus goes to look for him. Jesus didn't go look for Peter. It doesn't say that. Jesus goes to look for this normal believer. We learn that Jesus uses normal, everyday Christians. One commentator writes, Philip compels us to realize some of the disciples were perfectly ordinary That's something that we have to remember. The call to be a disciple, yes, it's a call to follow Jesus. It's a call to discipleship. It's a call to die to yourself and to live for Christ. It's a call to carry the cross, right? As described in all of these ways, we ought to be willing to, you know, if our hand causes us to sin, to cut it off and to pluck out our eyes. But that does not mean that uh, we become street preacher, missionaries, uh, you know. No, ordinary believers that God chooses to use for extraordinary 
things. Again, he's from Bethsaida in Galilee. And we are told that Andrew and Peter were from Galilee also. So there is good reason to believe that Philip knew Andrew and Peter, and he was probably with them when Jesus called him. He's probably there with them. Uh, it's not clear, but he makes that statement. We have found, whatever the case might be, perfectly ordinary believers are sought for by Jesus. Remember, he goes to search for that one lost sheep. And we should be of the same mind. You know, it's uh, it's uh, encouraging when the Lord uses us maybe to bring one of our parents to faith, maybe to bring our children to faith, but we should also be concerned with people who uh, may seem to us insignificant, but to God they are very important because they are His children. The way that Christ was here. So that's Jesus' interaction with Philip. And then Philip goes, and he found Nathanael and said to him, and it's the same word. He goes to look for him. He finds Nathanael and says to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And he says something that's important. Remember before when um, Simon is approached by his brother, he says, we have found the Messiah. But what Peter says is a little more simpler. He doesn't give a theological concept. He says what he, what he says is, him whom is written about in the Scripture the person who the Old Testament declares was coming. In essence, he's saying, the one who fulfills the Old Testament is here. He points to the Scripture. He points Nathaniel to the Scripture. And this is, this is important, really, to, in trying to figure out who Nathaniel is. But this becomes a very important theme in the Gospel of John, that Jesus fulfills the Scriptures, right? He, Jesus is not just stepping onto the scene, appearing um, and with no connection to things that have been said previously in the Word of God. Jesus' ministry is directly connected to the Word of God, and not only in places that, uh, like Isaiah's, prophecy of the suffering servant. Yes, those tied to Jesus, but even places that would appear to us to be insignificant declare to us the coming of Christ. Look at, the, look at these examples in John. These are just a few, and we're not going to uh, interpret them, but I want, them, want to present them to you so you can think about some of these. Look at John chapter 2, verse 17. So the, Jesus cleanses the temple. And in verse 17, uh, verse 16, he, and he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, 
and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus said to them. So first, he's a fulfillment of this one who is eaten up with zeal for God's house. That's from Psalm 69, verse 9. And if you read the psalm, it's not a technical messianic psalm. Yet, what is the statement that he says here? Remember, it says that they believe the scripture. Now, now you, you might say to yourself, oh yeah, this is scripture right here. They believe this event happened. No, look at the contrast. And the words which Jesus had said. Jesus said that he would be raised from the dead. And what, what is being implied here? That the Old Testament predicted the resurrection of Jesus. So in the Old Testament, the resurrection is there. More detail when we get to this passage. Look at chapter 7. In chapter 7, verse 37, you have the promise of the Holy Spirit. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those, those believing in him would receive, for the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Jesus quotes the Old Testament, and he says, if you come to me, what God promised in the Old Testament will be fulfilled for you. These are all promises from the book of Isaiah, and I think I preached some of this before, but we'll get to John 7. Look at John 12 now. John 12, 15. We read this this morning from Zechariah. John 12, 14. Then Jesus, when he, ha he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. Very, very clear there. Now look at chapter 20. The last place is chapter 20 and verse 9. This is the, the empty tomb. You can actually go back really to um, to verses in chapter nineteen, verses thirty-one through thirty-seven, and there are a number of passages there that are fulfilled in Christ's death. You have many references there, but look at verse uh, chapter twenty, verse nine. For as yet they did not know the Scripture that he must rise again from the dead. 
It was predicted in the scripture. What Philip then says to Nathaniel is, Nathaniel, we have found him who fulfills the scripture, not just the, what's written in Moses and what's written in the prophets. And this is sort of a way to say the entire Old Testament. We have found him who fulfills the Old Testament, all of the promises that we have been longing for. The reason this is, this is important for understanding who Nathaniel is, is be, uh, look at where, um, how this interaction between Nathaniel and Jesus go. Verse 47. Jesus said, uh, Jesus saw Nathaniel coming to him. Verse 47 in chapter 1. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming to him and said, Behold, an Israelite, indeed, in whom is no deceit. Now, this kind of takes you back to his statement. When Nathaniel first hear that Jesus is from Nazareth and that he's the son of Joseph, and this was the technical way of introducing anyone. He's from this particular area and this is his father. And of course, this is, uh, this is a reference in the Gospel of John to the virgin birth of Christ. Then uh, Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He didn't say that with any guile or deceit. He was being honest. Nazareth. The reason he would say this, not only because it was a kind of a town also on the outskirts, but there was nowhere in the Old Testament that explicitly predicted that the coming, that Christ would come out of Nazareth. So he's a little taken back by this statement. But he's not hostile to coming to Jesus. All Philip has to say to him is, come and see. And what does he do? He comes. He comes to see. And when Jesus makes this statement, he says to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. Nathaniel, again, he, he is one in whom there is no deceit. He's not being prideful when he says, how do you know me? It's important to understand what he means here by an Israelite indeed. By this statement, really, Jesus is, he arrests Nathaniel's attention. Like he catches his attention with this statement and it really takes him back. And what he's saying is that you share in the faith of Abraham. That's what he's saying. That's the point he's making. You are, are a genuine believer. You are one who is hoping in the Messiah. Paul puts it this way in Romans. Look at, look at how he states this. Uh, this helps under uh, this will help us understand what he means by this statement ground some of this in the scripture because uh, well we'll see from the text look at 228 228 Romans 228 for he is not a Jew Romans 228 for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. You see, being a true Jew, and here, of course, 
Paul is giving us a broader perspective in light of the coming of Christ, in light of his death and in light of his resurrection, and then the pouring out of the Spirit and the constituting of, of the church. But this is exactly what Jesus has in mind, this idea that to be an ethnic Jew does not make you Jewish, which is strange to us. He is a Jew, excuse me, but he is a Jew who is one out. I'm sorry, let me go back. Verse 28, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter. You see, the issue is an issue of the heart. A, a, a person can boast and, and uh, you know, uh, rejoice in their ethnicity, we can rejoice and uh, boast in our upbringing, but those things don't make us Christians. The fact that you were born in a Christian home, uh, went to a Christian school, graduated from a Christian college, you, that qualifies you to be saved because you're a sinner. But it doesn't grant you access to heaven. And the same applies for the Jewish people. To be born a Jew does not make you special to God. It doesn't. Look at Romans 9. Paul says it even uh, special in the sense that you are born saved. You must still put your faith in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. Look at 9.6. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. The fact that there aren't a lot of Jews converted at this point in history, it's not because the word of God is not effective. No. For they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are, all they, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. You see? Jesus was walking around all kinds of Jewish people. Where was he? He was in Galilee. He was in that general region. He was in the land. And he's walking around all of these people, and they were all on their way to hell. And then he states the principle here. In Isaac, your seed shall be called, and that this has to do with the call of God, and then he'll go into the issue of election. So election is not biological. And this is one of the reasons why, you know, Infant baptism is very unbiblical. The issue is not biological. The issue has to do with the heart, and it's an issue of faith. And this is what Jesus points out here. You are one who have, you have been waiting, you have been longing for the coming of the Messiah. Now, this really takes, he's never met the man. Now, now maybe, you know, maybe, you know, Philip might think, well, you know, maybe Oh, excuse me, Nathaniel might think, uh, maybe Philip told him, you know, what kind of, that, I'm, that I've been hoping and longing for the coming of the Messiah. But now Jesus says something to him that really catches his attention. In verse 50, I saw you under the fig tree. Um, excuse me, I'll take a step back. It's in verse 48. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. 
before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, there are a ton. So um, you do your work in the passage. You read as much as you possibly can to try to understand going on. And there are tons of explanations. Uh, the, uh, Nathaniel was pro- possibly a rabbi. Rabbis would spend their time under fig trees and, and all kinds of stuff. Um, but I think the point really is Jesus knew the man's heart. Particularly, he, Jesus was showing that he was omniscient. And in John 2.25, it says that Jesus knew what was in man. We don't know what was going on under that fig tree. Maybe Nathaniel was praying, Lord, um, send the Messiah. Maybe he was praying in light of uh, a prayer like Daniel's, where, where Daniel is praying for the Lord to come. Whatever it was, Jesus knew it. And here's the point. It's the same today. Jesus knows man. He knows every single person. And he knows them perfectly. He knows the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. If you're a Christian, this this in a sense ought to fill you with uh, much joy. Like he knows us individually, perfectly, intimately. Yet for the unbeliever, this ought to cause great terror. The acknowledgement of this causes Nathaniel to make really an exclamation. And he combines really all of the terms that are used of Jesus in this chapter except the Lamb of God. Rabbi, which we've heard in verse 38, you are the Son of God. That is what John says at his baptism, I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Remember what is said uh, to to Peter, we have found the Messiah, which is translated Christ, the King of Israel. And here with this statement, Nathaniel combines all of this terminology all of this terminology that's used for Jesus it's really the high point of the chapter the concluding statement almost from a disciple you are the son of god you are the king of israel and at this point of course nathaniel he speaks more than he knows. Nathaniel really doesn't come up in any of the other Gospels. People have surmised that he's uh, the, the apostle Bartholomew, that he had these two names. But it's not clear. He comes up here and he makes this emphatic statement. If he's just another disciple another, uh, beside the twelve, it is very clear from this section that um, he grasped who Christ was because Christ knew him. And now we, you know, Jesus isn't walking around today. But if you would but read the scriptures, what you would see is that Christ knows you and he unfolds the secrets of your mind and of your heart in his very word. He's not far from us. Uh, the, the fact that he is in heaven now does not mean that he is distant. He is all-knowing, and his word is like a sword that pierces through men. 
if, if um, put Christ to the challenge in this, come to the scriptures with a humble heart and you will see that God knows you intimately and pray that he would give you a knowledge that he is the son of God, that he is the king of Israel. Jesus answers him in this way, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. He'll see them, of course, in Cana, where he's from, of Galilee, when he turns water into wine. He will hear them when Jesus is preaching and proclaiming, when he's healing men and women. He heals a blind man, gives him sight. He will hear of all of these things, but the the high point really is going to be the death of Christ, when his glory is revealed. And what that proves is the truth that he shares with him in verse 51. Jesus says to him, Most assuredly I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. This is a reference to Genesis chapter 28 when Jacob leaves his father's house because his brother's going to kill him for stealing his birthright. And and uh, they had this conception. You know, you have you have to remember that um, Abraham and his descendants they were idol worshippers. You know, they had this false conception and false view of God that God was sort of territorial. So as he's leaving, as Jacob is leaving, he's running away, and he's basically going to become a slave uh, uh, shortly for uh, for Laban. But as he's leaving, he comes to a particular place and he, he asks God to reveal himself to him. And God does. And what Jacob's, what's interesting here is that um, Jacob, the name can mean uh, something like he, is who, he who is full of guile. He's a deceiver. Because he deceived his brother, right, and stole the birthright. Um. And it's interesting that he's speaking now to a true, an Israelite, a true Israelite. And uh, Jesus brings up this reference from Jacob. Well, Jacob is still Jacob, and he's still a deceiver, a troublemaker, really. And Jesus brings up this reference. But what does the reference show? We, we, We don't have time to unpack the entire chapter in verse 28, but what... Jacob was being in, God was instructing Jacob that where you are, wherever you might be, right, God can commune and have fellowship with you. God is not just some territorial God. He's not located in a particular place. No, the, the Lord can come. There is a ladder. That's what Jacob, what is revealed to Jacob. Well, that ladder, Jesus says, is me. I'm the mediator between God and men. You're declaring that I am the Messiah, that I'm the Son of God? Much more than that. I am the mediator between God and man. And that mediator is the term that, that uh, he missed here, that, that John the Baptist was declaring. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We need a mediator not only to stand in between us and bring us to God, one who is righteous, but we need one to bear all of our sins. 
and he is declaring to Nathanael, I am the one who've come, who's come to make a way for you to have fellowship with God by my death. You think that knowing that you were under the fig tree and knowing your thoughts and the intentions of your heart reveal to you my glory, you will see my glory the greatest when I die to save sinners. Nathaniel, that is when you will come to know me. And as we consider this grand message that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the mediator between God and men, remember that us sharing that truth in simplicity, the way Philip does, Philip doesn't try to argue with Nathaniel when he says, does anything good come out, come out of Nazareth? He doesn't say, yeah, um, you, uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't go to Zechariah, to Zechariah or to Isaiah and say, well, remember the Hebrew word Nazar, which means branch, is derived from Nazareth. Therefore, he doesn't argue that way. He just says, come and see. And that's, that's what we have to tell people. You see, we're not trying to win people to Christ by the power of our intellect, with uh, the might of our apologetics. We might have all those things. Those things are helpful to us. They're tools. But ultimately, men, women, and children must come to the Son of God, the King of Israel, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Men and women must come to know Christ. And that is the way, not only that Christianity has been spread throughout history, but that it will be spread in this valley if we are faithful to declare these things to others, to the insignificant, right? To people who nobody else wants to talk to. Nobody talks to that guy. He's, he's, a, he's an old curmudgeon. He's lived in that house for 45 years and nobody likes him. Well, give me his address, right? Those are the people whom God is interested in the foolish of the world. Let us remember these things, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity of, of, of seeing Christ minister to men, declaring who he is to others. We thank you for seeing him work and calling his sheep to himself. And we ask, Lord God, that we would gather men and women with you and not be those who scatter others. In Christ's name we pray.